Here, let me let me pray for us when we get started. Gracious Father, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in your sovereign action on our behalf, Lord, to set your love upon us before the foundation of the world, to redeem us through the precious blood of Christ, to draw us to yourself through your Holy Spirit, to keep us, Lord, for the final day when you will renew all things. Lord, we praise your great name that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We praise you, Lord, that you came to rescue us, though we had turned our backs upon you. Lord, work in our hearts even again today that we might, uh, in the teaching and preaching of your word and the worship of God, be renewed in the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, renewed that we might gladly give ourselves up to your will, gladly give ourselves up to your mission in this world. Lord, bless us. We are utterly in need of you. We can do no good apart from you. Oh, bless us, precious Jesus. Amen. So, you've heard me use this analogy before, but uh, maybe not all of you have. <clears throat> uh, in the movie uh, about... Uh, <laughs> I always drop the name of this movie. I don't know why. Um, the movie about the Scotsman who fought England. Thank you very much. <laughs> See, this is question and answer. <laughs> always working for discussion. Anyway, so in Braveheart, you might recall that at uh, William's father's funeral, this little girl came up to him and handed him a flower, right? Handed him the flower. He's carted off by his uncle to be trained and prepared. And he comes back and he immediately looks her up, we'll say. And they start going out and, uh, or kind of against his, her parents' will. But uh, he comes back, uh, brings her back. Lost a button. Uh, he brings her back one day. And he hands her a cloth, and she opens the cloth after he rides off, and it's that flower that she had given him. And so all that time, you know, he had, he had thought about and treasured that flower to the day that he could have this relationship with her. And I think of election in that way, in a sense. You know, it's God's pressed flower. It's in his own providence. We didn't give it to him. But in a sense, he ordained it. He set his love upon us. And then there was that day when he opened the flower to draw us to himself. That's a beautiful picture to think that, in a way, in the eternal counsels of God, there's always been this love, this devotion to our good that finally would be carried out in the person of Jesus Christ. So, uh, I thought I'd give you this as we uh, leave the election part, um, just listing some of the aspects of election. This certainly doesn't exhaust uh, election as a doctrine, but helps to distinguish some of the things. Uh, the first one is simply, it's undeniable, he did choose us. Uh, the second one, that it's unconditional, as we saw before the foundation of the world. This shows God's initiative 
It's unchangeable. You can find at least 12 words in that section that talk about it's God's counsel, it's His purpose, it's His will. Those things cannot be changed. Those things will be faithfully carried out. So election, there's faithfulness. It is inseparable because it is in Christ. It is in the Beloved. That means there's protection for us. There's no separation from us and Christ. It's personal because it says in love He predestined. He predestined us to adoption. He did it through His kind pleasure, uh, which is a better translation for the word uh, forgive. And these things are freely given to us, gladly, joyfully given to us in Christ. So there's passion. It's not a, a dry Uh, disconnected action on the part of God. It is out of His eternal love that He uh, chooses us to be His forever. And then we see that it's moral because we are chosen to be holy and blameless. That means there is purity, which is our faithfulness. His faithfulness, it's unchangeable. Our faithfulness in purity. And then it has this great purpose to the praise of the glory of His grace. So there's a final joy and glory. So God exalts himself by showing his grace to his people. And this is always an encouragement to me, really weekly in prayer, that I come to him and say, Lord, exalt your grace by having mercy on me in my weakness and my sin. Uh, Will he fail to exalt his grace? Will he refuse to exalt his grace and his mercy? He longs to exalt his grace and mercy. And as we've said before, whatever weakness you bring, whatever sinfulness you bring, uh, dig the hole really deep. Let it, let it uh, cover every aspect of your brokenness. And, and his salvation is exalted all the more as he rescues you from uh, your sin and brokenness. So uh, there is this... Uh, there's this initiative uh, in before time, as we've seen. And, and of course, we have this, we've, we've illustrated this second many times, the final unity in Christ uh, to which everything points. But you might say, uh, both in this and, and all things, that everything is to the glory of God. So there's an historical purpose uh, for the world, and then there's this purpose of God's exaltation in all of it. So you could say that we were chosen ultimately to enjoy final unity in Christ. We were chosen ultimately to bring great glory to God. Okay. Any questions or thoughts about this before we move on? And then at the bottom, I've just summarized for you some of the statements uh, in Ephesians. It, it drifts into chapter two and chapters two and three, uh, but it speaks of the glory of His grace in uh, verse six, uh, the riches of His grace, verse eighteen, the riches of the glory of His inheritance, two seven, as He's talking about the. Uh, in the coming ages, as we are in Christ Jesus forever and ever, 
uh, he, it's for the purpose of showing the immeasurable riches of his grace through being kind to us. 3.8, Paul speaks of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. 3.16, we pray that he act and empower us in our inner man because of the riches of his glory. That means the, the wealth of his capacity to do us good. You know, Based on the wealth of capacity you have to do us good. Oh Lord, strengthen us with power through your spirit in the inner man. And of course, verses 12 and 14 speak of the praise of his glory. But you can see from this passage is that, that this, this whole letter is about the immense, immeasurable, boundless treasures of Christ that are ours. And with all of these, you could go back to verse 1, couldn't you? Uh, uh, verse 3 of, of chapter 1, that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And these are just other expressions of it, aren't they? You know? These riches of His glory, the riches of His grace, the immeasurable riches of His grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of the glory of God that are ours to call upon. <clears throat> so, uh, all of this, of course, is equipping and nourishing and uh, feeding us on the riches, the, the uh, wealth of God that we might be the people of God, giving ourselves up to His will, which is more the emphasis of chapters 4 through 6. All right, that could spend a whole lot of time on that, but uh, I hope that it will encourage you and you'll read through this pas- these passages and that you will, because uh, we'll be, we'll be talking, talking about these passages as we go to. <clears throat> so, to the back then, a little breakdown of the remaining part of uh, Ephesians 1. And so let's read beginning in verse 7 to the uh, end of this section. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I've broken this down, uh, and it's not, it's, not, it's, it's, it's uh, logical, it's not completely in order. So, we're going to talk about his rescue then, and that's verses 7 and 8, his redemption through his blood that he has lavished upon us. Uh, Then we'll talk about the now, which is uh, verses 12 and 13, uh, that we are to the praise of his glory. We have hoped in Christ and that we are sealed with the promised uh, spirit, and then uh, the, the, uh, the then part, verse 14, speaks about our inheritance, 
Verses 9 and 10 speak of the fullness of time when he'll unite all things in Christ. So I've described this as a passionate uh, salvation. First of all, of course, it's the passionate love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Um, I'm going to open this up for uh, your input, but how would you how would you summarize or, or how would you uh, talk about the relationship of the love of God to the death of Christ or the love of Christ to the death of Christ? Do you say that's emphasized or not or how is it emphasized? Could you bring some scripture to the table about this association of Christ's death and God's love? I'm ready with a black pen. Somebody has left John 3.16, right. Yes, yes. Uh, that would be John 15, 13, I think. <laughs> it's right in there. Um, let's talk about John 3.16 just a little bit. What's the emphasis of John 3.16? He so loved the world. So it's like he's, he's answering the question, how much does God love the world? Right? That's, that's the question. And he's answering it. This is how much he loved the world. Do you understand it? You know, wide-eyed John, you know, this is how much he loved the world. You know, he just... You just feel the passion, the amazement. The gospel writers are amazed at God's love. They can't get over it. They can't stop talking about it. And of course, it's focused in the person of Christ. He so loved the world. He loved the world this much. Of course, world here is the world of sinners, right? Now, I don't think it's the, the word world here is, is being used in the sense sometimes in John where it's, it's contrasting uh, the people of God with the world. But it's, it's taking in the whole world, but it's understood that this is a whole world. As John says later in 1 John 5, the whole world lies in the hand of the evil one. God so loved that world that he gave his son. Okay, good. So, greater love. Here's Jesus saying, in a, in a way, he's saying, I have the greatest love for my people, right? Aha, uh-huh, yes. And we can throw in nine as well. And, and what's so great about 1 John 4, 9 and 10 is that it's as though... Uh, we have never seen love before, right? In this is love. You're like, wait, what about other? Yes, God has shown his love in so many ways. But here's the new, the, the final definition, the forever definition of love. In this is love that uh, God gave his, only, his, his son to be a propitiation for us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
to die for us. So uh, it, it kind of borrows from this, this, this greatest love. And here you might, in, in, there's a certain sense here in, that we have finally seen what love is. So, uh, yes, and, and what's also interesting, if you've heard me say this dozens of times probably, he gets down to verse 416, and you realize that this love that is manifested in Christ is the take-home from the cross. In fact, this could be a statement of what happens when somebody is converted or what happens when they have faith. Does he say, we've come to know and believe that, that Jesus died for us? Well, he could. That's true. What does he say? We've come to know and believe what? Y'all read verse 16. Read verse 16. <laughs> yes. So, the, the, the cross, here, here it is. The cross is for the purpose of revealing the love of God to us. That's the argument in 1 John 4. It's that this is what we've come to know and we've come to believe this. We've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. How have you come to know and believe the love God has for us? Because this is love that He gave His Son. And that's why... I'm always, I talk about this in your members class, you hear us talking about it from the pulpit, trying to make the connection that you don't think of forgiveness or the death of Christ or justification as just this legal transaction that God made. But you realize all of this is to woo us under and into this protecting love of God, right? To win our hearts for Himself. So, uh, here and here, you can see that it's the love in the giving of His Son. It's the love in the sacrifice of Christ that is revealed to us, that comforts us, that strengthens us, that allows us to give ourselves up to His will, that allows us to die for Him and hope, in, as He says later, in Judgment Day without fear, because I don't have to fear Judgment Day. Why? Because I've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. How have you come to know? Because of the cross of Jesus. See? So the cross of Jesus convinces us of that love. Okay? Uh, a few others. Well, two others that I have. One was that it's... I mean, he could have died a less painful death. Mm. So you're kind of going into bonus round territory. Yeah. <laughs> right. You don't want to die under one of the cruelest execution regimes yes. in history. Yes, absolutely. And so there's kind of something to that. Also, I don't know if there's a verse for that, but uh, it's not just death, but death on the cross. Right. And emphasizing that factor. Relative intensity there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Philippians 2, Paul uh, talks about that when he's he says that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he poured himself out, becoming a servant, even to the obeying, even to the point of the death of the cross, just like yourself. So he's just like, Paul, 
He can't get over that. Even the cross. And and we know all of this meant that he bore the wrath of God, that he had to spill his very blood. And you hear in First Peter, uh, we're redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious uh, blood of Christ um, right in there. Um, so the most precious aspect of his giving up his life, blood represents the sacrifice of his whole life on our behalf. He went to, there, there was... There was nothing he held back, you know, in giving himself to us. Yes. Yeah, can you go back to John Yes. The word so, um, that word underlying the English translation is, is that idea of faith. Even more than so much. And it points to the verse preceding it, John 3, 14 and 15, where we go back to Moses. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the son of man next to the so that whoever believes Great. Yeah, yeah, great. There was in this way that he loved the world. Yeah, yeah. Good. That's very good. Thank you. Um, so, uh, in this way, through the cross, uh, this is how God revealed his love. Um, and while we're on this, let me, let's just mention also the idea of forgiveness here. How does, what J.D.'s talking about, how does the extent, how can, you, how can meditation upon the extent of the horrible suffering of Christ, both physically and spiritually bearing the wrath of God, how can that help you as you're thinking through or struggling with your own forgiveness? I have to get some water here in a second. For me, it really forces me to be free. Because you know, there wasn't a payment here that was a calculated payment that you can then therefore eventually pay back. It was it was not repayable. And it was not live in a, in, a, in a mental attitude of, okay, I have to start figuring out how to pay God back, that immediately contradicts the, the type of payment that you made. Yeah. It's like if someone gives you a present, and it's a present that you could somehow pay him back for, that's, that's totally different than uh, something that you really, there, there's no way you can now pay back that kind of gift. And so you need to thinking about it totally differently rather than say, how can I pay this back? It's, Thank you. How Thanks. can I? Taking some medicine that's drama. Rather than thinking about how I can pay it back, is thinking about how I can just enjoy it. Mm. Um, and, and so there's a freedom there, even... Mr. Yes, absolutely. He doesn't want us to focus on, okay, well, you're still a focus center. He wants us to focus on, you are very, very, very free. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and as as we can relate to, or, or try to relate to the death on the cross, I think Christ's greatest thing that he did during that time was having to be separated from God. That was his biggest hard thing. And 
Mm, mm. Yeah, bore our sins we in his... We can even relate to that once we've tasted God, which Christ certainly had. Mm, mm. We never have to do that. He did that for us. Mm-hmm. He suffered alienation so we can know fellowship yeah, and, and intimacy with God. Yeah, uh, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He, he bore away the wrath of God. And for me, exploring that and thinking about that, all the more assures me of the perfection of his sacrifice, the completeness of his sacrifice. There is nothing left to suffer for. He did it all. That's, that's why the idea of purgatory is so obnoxious uh, to us. You know, the idea that after everything's done, then you'll have to spend some unlimited time or some limited uh, time uh, of suffering to, to make up for the, for the rest of it. <clears throat> so the freedom of being forgiveness because of the uh, severity, the completeness of the suffering that Christ did for us. And, of course, maybe one of the greatest statements of it, we'll talk a little bit about this in worship today, is Romans 5, uh, 6 through 8. So, we we might love someone enough to die for a good person, God demonstrates his love, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There again, though, Paul is is exploring love. And it's interesting in verse 5 when he says, We have hope in the future, and a hope is certain because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is a way to say that God's love is communicated to our hearts through the Holy Spirit so that we experience that love. We know that love. That's why we have hope in the future, which is the uh, first part of Romans 5. Because, interesting, because of the love that's poured out in our hearts, and then he starts defining that love. What love are you talking about? The love that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, right? Then he goes on to argue, if he died for us while we were sinners, how much more now being reconciled will we be saved in the final day? So it gives us that hope. Uh, Love convinces us of God's love now and in the final day. John argues the same thing here because starting with uh, verses 17 to following, he says, we have no fear uh, of judgment. It, our, our fear of judgment has been taken away uh, because perfect love casts out fear. So this experience or being convinced of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus that enables us to give ourselves up to him and give ourselves away to others, even in the midst of suffering, also produces this great hope that we have that he will be with us Uh, throughout our days. It's the basis of Paul saying, uh, as we say so many times in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? So that love gives us hope for the future that all things will be given to me because he hasn't spared his son. All things will work together for me because of the love that he has shown in his son. Okay? So... This is a passionate love, and it demands a passionate response. And J.D.'s already talked about it some, but 
to delight in forgiveness. And that's always, you know, the enjoyment of your forgiveness, the rest in your forgiveness, the comfort in your forgiveness, the clean conscience of your forgiveness, the sense of God's favor in your forgiveness, the sense that God is for me as a part of your forgiveness. I still, I know that we struggle with the idea that he's going to let me in his house, but he's going to send me to the back closet. <laughs> Don't come out very often, you know. And when you do, I'm probably going to be just, you know, looking at you like this. I can't believe this. You know. But you get to go to heaven. See, that's, that's not, I mean, we all have endured that. I certainly have. A sense of saying in my head, I know that Jesus died for my sin and I know he forgives me. And I think I know I'm going to heaven. But that can seem to be totally separated from my active sense of the favor of God. But they're wedded in scripture, right? It's that favor of God through forgiveness that allows me to say all things will work together for good. He's going to Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Why, ultimately? Because he's loved me in Christ Jesus. I've come to know and believe the love that God has for me. Anybody want to comment on that or share your own struggles in that area? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, good. That's very good. Yeah, what's, what's uh, fascinating about Galatians 2.20 there, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he says, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Loved me and gave himself for me. I just love that phrase. I live by faith in this Son of God, the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Which gets to point number two, is that convinced of uh, this love, this enables us to give ourselves up to his will. To trust his wisdom, to trust his authority, to trust his commands, to to go to his word as the word of the one who died for me. You know, how precious is this, you know. I'm thinking when I'm under conviction, 
God's conviction only leads me to feeling good, you know, if, you know, going that way. And I'm just praying that I can, can think and understand these words to speak of them lovingly, that she, she lives down the street from Yellow Apartments there mm. on the way to Walmart. Mm. Um, I, I'm praying that God finds the very right Sunday that she walks in and feels love and not bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What what's uh, what's interesting about the gospel is that hearing about the love of God in Christ allows us fully to explore just how bad we are. You know? And then that's that's as we find in our life, that's like layers of an onion. It just get deeper and deeper and deeper into the mess of your life and my life. But all within the context of what? He loved me. He gave himself for me. You've probably heard me talk about this illustration before about my house where the, uh, the smell was so bad in the kitchen. And uh, yeah, you remember this? Really, really bad. It just got worse and worse. I thought it would go away. So I go under. The house is on piling. So I'm pylons and I'm pushing I go under, and it's about two feet, and pretty soon I hit the garbage that has become under the house. So our garbage disposal was just emptying into, onto the ground. So, as I've said, it wasn't Shawshank Redemption. It wasn't 500 yards. Okay, but it was pretty bad to make me want to throw up. You know, pushing my way through this stuff, my face is right in it. There's no other way to get there. And I had to sit there in this mess and repair this pipe, you know, and fix the PVC pipe. But it has always made me think that God sees my life like that. And he, he sees it smells bad to him. It smells infinitely bad. He despises, you know, beyond our imagination. And yet he embraces me in Christ. You know, Christ he embraces us before the foundation of the world by choosing us. And then Christ gave himself for ungodly people. And then the Holy Spirit comes to indwell initially in someone that is totally ungodly. You know, he has to start from scratch, right? Uh, so to speak, to, to begin to woo us. So um, that has helped me again and again to think, okay, in this this uh, trek to greater holiness and, uh, and learning that all sanctification involves finding out other things that I've been not thinking right or, you know, like growing and, and learning about my sin and becoming more like Christ. That is done in the context of his embracing Christ. That's really critical. And as the Puritans would say, it's part of the gospel motive. You're motivated by the gospel, by the love of Christ. Um, And, of course, that's why Paul can say that I'm governed by that love. And even here in this passage, verse 15, it's kind of like Galatians 2.20. He says, we uh, no longer live for ourselves, but for him who uh, died uh, for us uh, and us in him. So, again... 
this, this love is connected to the death and that we lose ourselves and give ourselves up to him in, in the light of his death. Uh, so, so this delight in forgiveness, uh, entrusting ourselves uh, to him, uh, I'll just uh, mention the strength of hope that we see uh, in verse 12. We were the first to hope in Christ. Now, hope, uh, hope and faith are many times interchangeable, but hope has that uh, more future orientation, though faith does as well. And it's interesting that he would say the first, not just to trust in Christ, but the first to hope in Christ. Uh, and we're sealed as, as we believe in him, verse 13, we're sealed with the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So immediately, the Christian life is oriented to the future. Would somebody read for us, First uh, Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. Tell me when you, you get that. So, when, when we have faith, when we believe, there's an immediate ori- orientation to the future, okay? For they themselves report concerning us the kind of redemption we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Thank you. And yes. Isn't that interesting? You turned to serve and to wait. <laughs> now, we turn and serve, but are we actively waiting? You know, are we expecting? Is our orientation to the future uh, that we began to hope in Christ that? We value the precious Holy Spirit because He guarantees our final inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So immediately there is the idea of inheritance and future possession. And this is critical because He calls us to lose ourselves in serving Him, right? So immediately our hearts are fixed upon the eternal uh, salvation and possession, inheritance that we have in Christ, which shores us up and strengthens us that we can lavishly give ourselves away knowing we have an eternal uh, possession. Uh, and you get passages uh, that seem to indicate that He is coming for those who, who, who love Him or are expecting Him. So, for instance... In 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul says, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Wow. Now, I'm not going to say... You better love it a lot, or you, you know, we're not into that. But it does show that there's this, this real, uh, uh, real and pervasive orientation to the future, so that we, even if our lives are relatively physically safe and we're affluent and 
we don't have the suffering of so many people in the world who are Christians and throughout the history of the world. Sin itself is our agony, right? Sin itself, that we would be free finally. And we want Christ to be exalted in that final day. We want uh, righteousness to prevail in this world. Uh, We want all things made right. So we're just immediately oriented in this future direction. And he's coming for those who uh, await his appearance. This is said as well at the end of uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9 when he says, Christ having been offered once, this is verse 28, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So two times at least, and of course there are many others that are less explicit, but um, it, it shows that believers who love Christ, who are trusting him, who are broken and helplessly depending upon him for all things, have a natural orientation. Oh, I want to see you. I want you to come. I want to be with you forever. I, I, I want to see you exalted. I want to see... And there, there are those rare times where I've ached, just ached in the face of the rejection of Christ throughout the world, to see Him exalted, you know, to see Him recognized. That's our agony. That's our pain. We look to that day when He will be exalted. <clears throat> and then the, uh, the certainty of this new world when he connects it in verses 9 and 10. We've talked about this a good bit in the first day, talking about the central uh, theme of Ephesians, the final unity of all things in Christ. And you'll, you'll see that he made known to us the mystery of his will, verse 9. This was according to his purpose set forth in Christ. There's the plan, there's the purpose There's this will uh, that has now been made known in all wisdom and insight. It is oriented to the fullness of time, uh, that final day that God alone knows, and it will be his perfect time. Uh, It would be like Paul's uh, use of this in in Galatians when he spoke about uh, in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Right? So, you think of all the Old Testament, and at the fullness of time, the time that God had chosen, the time that was right in His, his plan, He sent His Son. And here, as Paul saying, in the fullness of time, all things will be united in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> um, we could talk a lot about this uh, in terms of a, a, a concept. But in the wider scope of the New Testament, uh, I think if you want to read one comprehensive passage that we refer to a lot, uh, go to Romans 8, uh, 18 through 23. Um, this comes on the heel of his discussion in verses 14 and 17 of adoption. which is repeated in verse 3, and it speaks of the redemption of our bodies. 
in terms of our final adoption, doesn't use final, but just says adoption. So there's this present aspect by which we cry out, Abba, Father, because we have been adopted and we belong to Christ. And then there is this final aspect when our whole being is transformed in the last day and we are manifested as the sons of God and we are made perfect. And there's a sense in which, of course, our adoption is not completed until that final day. It shows how important the redemption of the body is. Um, but this uniting of all things, as he says, in heaven and on earth, of course, includes creation itself. And a corollary to Ephesians 1.10 is Colossians uh, 1. Uh, we could start with 18 following. But there he says he will reconcile all things to himself. Okay? So, uniting all things in Christ, Ephesians, all things united in Christ, and then this speaks of the death of Christ in order to reconcile all things to himself. See the connection. His death had that as an orientation, and Paul talks here that election and redemption have as their orientation all things being united in Christ Jesus. So he is exalted. He is the one in whom the creation finds its unity. His action on the cross had that as its goal to see all things reconciled to him. So we have this orientation, not just, and this is why many times we have to deal with language when people say God saves our souls, but God saves everything about us because we are body and we are soul. He saves the whole creation and it does not lose the creation even though it fell into the hands of the evil one uh, or, or the world of men that were in the hands of the evil one. All creation is always in God's hands. So um, that's just a, a brief underscoring of that which underscores the strength of hope that we have um, that uh, all things are headed to this new creation. Well, let us pray. Lord, we thank you again that you have revealed to us these glorious truths, the glorious destiny that we have in Christ, uh, knowing that in the confusion, the darkness, the terrible pain and suffering of this world, nonetheless, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God and all things are moving to the final point where there will be shalom, there will be righteousness, all suffering will be removed, and Lord, all things will be reconciled in Christ. All things will be united in Christ. We thank you that you've caught us up, you've swept us up into this glorious purpose, that we can now be a part of gathering others into this great salvation uh, so that they themselves in that final day, can enter into the new creation as the sons and daughters of the King, made new forever to rule with Him. Lord, bless us to this end, we pray. Amen.